Well, good evening. How are you doing this evening? Good. Good to see you. I am glad you're here on a Saturday night. Welcome to those in our church family joining us online as well. We are glad you are here. And um, before I dive into the message, I just want to acknowledge that uh, it's a big weekend nationally. And uh, as we see the decision coming down from the Supreme Court... um, I think scripture is, uh, is pretty clear when it comes to the lives of the unborn. Um, Psalms, David in Psalms 139 speaks of it like this. He says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Powerful passage. Not the only one in scripture, but many scriptures that speak of life. Uh, I, I think often of the uh, passage of John in the womb of his mother, leaping for joy when he just when, when uh, Mary walks in with Messiah in her womb. I think of passages of God speaking destiny and prophecy about children while still yet in their womb. And so while we celebrate, many in the nation celebrate. Um, the decision by the Supreme Court that, that throws the decision on abortion back to the states. Um, we also acknowledge that, that it's a much bigger issue, and it's a much bigger issue than legislation. It's an issue of the heart. And so many, many um, in our nation do not feel the same way. And we acknowledge that. And I would say that, uh, that I think the answer ultimately is a culture that values life, a culture that values the ethic we see sexually in the scriptures, and a church that, as, uh, as committed as it may be to working in the, uh, in, the legislat- in the legislative realm, is much more committed to working in the realm of ministering to unwed mothers and, and women in crisis pregnancies. And so we have some great ministries here locally that are doing that. I get to actually go and have a tour of the new uh, pregnancy center facility here this week. And so um, what I would invite you to do during this time in our nation, uh, where we see on such stark display the polarization um, and such radically different um, emotions, if you've been watching the news, unless your head's been stuck in the sand, what I would invite you to do is let's, let's ask God to move on hearts in this nation. Because ultimately, that, ultimately, God moving on hearts is the answer. So would you join me in prayer? Lord, we come before you. Uh, we acknowledge what a momentous weekend this is. Um, Lord, we lift up our nation right now. And Lord, we ask that, uh, that you would move on hearts. Ultimately, we know revival is the answer that you encountering people, changing their hearts, changing their lives, ultimately is the answer to the great polarization and division that we 
experience, Lord. And so we do ask that, that we as followers of you would step in, that we would serve, that we would love really well, that we would not be the noisy, loveless voices, but that we would be the ones who serve in a powerful way and reach out to those in love in our community and in our world that are in need, that are hurting, that that would be what the church is known for, Lord. Um, We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, guys. Well, let's go ahead and dive on in to what we're talking about. If you are new around here, uh, we don't often we don't often address hot button issues, but occasionally we do. But we are actually in a series where we are going through the book of. John, and we've been in it for quite a while. We're going to be in it for quite a while. But let me just ask you to dive into it. What, what are you afraid of? Do you have something in your life you're afraid of? I'm sure you do. Um, I don't really like spiders. I don't know about you. I'm not terrified of spiders, um, like irrationally, but, but I wouldn't say I like to cozy up to them either. Um, I remember one time I was in, some of you are irrationally afraid. Anybody want to admit it? Like you just, yeah, okay, I know. Uh, I remember being in Thailand when I was in my 20s. I was doing some mission work over there. And uh, we were in this refugee camp um, and teaching English and hanging out. It was just like staying in a bamboo hut. And uh, we'd bathe in the stream and do our laundry in the stream. It was, uh, it was an amazing experience. But I remember these Thai refugees there from Myanmar that had come across because of the war. And you know we, we support outpour movement, um, which are still working right in this area. And in fact, had a children's home in this very refugee camp years later. Um, but these uh, young Thai school kids that we were working with teaching English to um, Karen people that were being persecuted that had fled from Myanmar. They invited us over and uh, we were going to go on a hike with them. And so I remember they took us into this cave and it was a really cool cave. And one spot I remember as we're climbing up through this cave, and this isn't like anybody been to Carlsbad Caverns. Yeah, where it's very controlled and safe and you know, you've got a lighted path and they only turn off the lights for that like 10 seconds to freak you out and then turn it back on. It's cool. Um, so this isn't that. This is like cave, refugee camp, middle of nowhere, little freaky. And I remember as we're crawling through this cave, I, I take a look up and we're, I don't even think we had headlamps or anything. It was like flashlights or little like candle torches, right? And I, I look up in the, the ceiling. At this point, you got to crawl through on your belly. And... Um, the ceiling is only about like two feet above you at this point. And I look up and the whole ceiling was crawling with spiders. Millions and millions of spiders. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, right? And <laughs> crawled through that part. Um, lots of other spider stories in Thailand that I won't tell you because you won't want to ever go on a missions trip there. Um, <laughs> All right, one more. Uh, <laughs> I, we were there with our friends Ray and Candace Ward, and we were having this like missions dinner on the floor because that's how you eat in this church um, where everybody's gathered around. And I kid you not, this this tarantula kind of spider that was like the size of a small like dinner plate um, comes crawling through and starts bumping up against the leg of Candace, my my friend that uh, Ray and Candace, and uh, she's like, "What?" Right? And they're just no big deal. They just pick it up and chuck it out. Um, so, you should go on a missions trip with us. 
Ensenada is a little more cushy, so maybe that's the one you want to go on first. But anyway, we fear a lot of things, some rational, um, you know, obvious. I think like being a little afraid of heights is probably a healthy thing, right? It will save some of your lives. Um, so I'm got, I, the older I get, I get a little more, you know, cautious around heights. But I think there's so many other fears in life that actually keep us from things um, that God may want us to get to. Uh, the fear of what people think is a huge one. How many times have you posted something or obsessed over an Instagram post on how many likes you got or how many likes you didn't get? Fear of what people think, for many people, is a considerable driver of anxiety. I think for some, the fear of being outed, of being seen as you really are instead of the image you project, drives so much unhealthy behavior. The fear of losing status or position or comfort. I mean, it's kind of hard. Over the last couple of years, I think, going through and, you know, this whole season we've been through and now in this kind of really crazy spot with the global financial markets and just going, where is it all going? A lot of people, the, the driving feeling is a, is a feeling of fear. Sometimes fear keeps us from saying things that need to be said in a moment, for standing for things that need to be stood for because it just doesn't feel like it's worth it. To having a conversation that needs to be had in a family, but we know the reaction on the other side or we anticipate what it'll be. Jesus had a lot to say about fear, actually, and how that works itself out in anxiety and worry in our lives. And if you're honest, I think as you read some of the things that Jesus said, sometimes you're, you'd be like, really, Jesus? That just seems kind of unrealistic. Um, he says this, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Don't worry about your life. And I think <laughs> for so many of us, it's like, really, Jesus? Have you seen my life? I mean, how could I not worry about my life? It just seems so, un it just seems so unrealistic. I mean, okay, you hung out, you know, in, in the first century and walked around fields and stuff, but you, you didn't have the pressures of modern day life which I think Jesus would chuckle at you uh, for, if you're thinking that. Because uh, newsflash, we have it easier than, you know, any society basically ever has up until this time in history when you look at the grand scheme of things. So. But sometimes it just looks a little unrealistic. But here's what I think Jesus knows and why he's, he says so much about fear and anxiety. He knows that if we allow our lives to be driven by anxiety, it'll cause us to go places and do things that will make our life ultimately unproductive for his kingdom and really will rob and steal joy from us in the way that he's designed us to live. And so I want to see how this sort of theme plays itself out a little bit in this next section of John chapter 9 that we're in. And it's this incredible uh, story of the healing of a man born blind. If you missed next or last week, you can go back and listen to our podcast or catch up on, on the uh, YouTube channel. And because uh, it's an amazing, amazing account of this miracle that Jesus does um, with this man who's born blind. And last week, what we looked at is his disciples are walking by this dude here that's a beggar on the side of the road. And that's the only options this guy really had in life. 
um, to somebody born blind, to somebody who is blind in this culture, you you were a beggar. You Everything you received was from somebody else's pity or compassion to you just to survive. Um, you had no hope of growing up to getting married. Um, you, you had no educational system that existed to help your life um, be more easy. There, there were none of these things, no schools for the blind, no service animals, none of these kinds of things. In this culture, it was a very, very difficult thing. And Jesus and his disciples are walking by this guy, and his disciples ask him, Hey, look at that dude. He was born blind. Who sinned, him or his parents? Two options. And last week, what we talked about is karma and grace and how these things play themselves out and the difference between the gospel and what so many people's way of living in life, karma, you do good things, good things come back. You do bad things, bad things come back. The universe sort of works it all out. It's not biblical. It's not the gospel. It's not grace. That's what we looked at last week. And so Jesus actually goes, no, no, this, nobody sinned. It wasn't him. It wasn't his parents. But if you actually look at this situation, what I want you to see here is the opportunity right in front of you, that the work of God, the power of God could be displayed in this guy's life, that, that you are called to reach out to move in compassion that I, you are called to speak into the situation. You are called to move in the situation. And then, of course, Jesus, he uh, spits, hawks up a big one, right? Yeah, that's Jesus. What would Jesus do? Hawk a loogie up. I heard the bracelets are coming back. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. Anybody remember the bracelets? If you're like under 20, 30, you're like, what bracelets? Uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Um, anyway, so you could say he might have spit um, in this occasion. So it's like dudes are like, see, Jesus did it. I'm just do doing what Jesus would do. Uh, I think he did it a little differently. But anyway, uh, Jesus spits and <laughs> he makes mud and rubs it in this guy's eyes, which must have been so annoying. I mean, the dude didn't even see it coming. Sorry. <laughs> Couldn't resist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which again, must not have been very hard. I mean, must not have been very easy because remember, this guy had to be led everywhere he went. And this was a little ways away. And so instead of just finding the closest glass of water to wash off in, he obeyed the word of Jesus, and he experienced a profound miracle, something that had never been seen in Old Testament times. A man who was born blind received back his sight, and everybody goes crazy. And that's where we pick up the, uh, the story here today. We're going to pick up where we left off. Verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. It's me. It's really me. Then how were your eyes opened, they asked. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. 
I love this because sharing Jesus begins simply with like just saying what Jesus has done in your life. Like we, sometimes we think of sharing Jesus as this big, difficult, complicated thing. And this guy, literally, I, I really like this. He's just like, I, where's Jesus? I don't know. What happened? Well, it was kind of like this. This dude like spit and then like rubbed mud in my eyes and uh, I, I washed and I was healed. And I'm sure like everybody's just going crazy. They can't believe the story. He probably had to tell it like 40 times in the, in the first 20 minutes, right? Everybody's just going crazy. And they ask him, where, where is he? And I think there's some sarcasm here because he was like, dude, I was blind. I didn't exactly like watch where he went off to. I don't know. And they're like, what happened? It's just going crazy. And I think something else that you got to be, um, when, when it comes to being bold in your faith, you need to begin to get comfortable with this little phrase, I don't know. It's one of the most powerful phrases you can actually use in um, your walk with Jesus when it comes to sharing with people. Because guess what? You're going to get some questions that you don't know the answer to. And instead of acting like an idiot and trying to, to go, well, let's see. I read this once, and um, let me just, let me give you a great answer. I don't know. But maybe it's a question on, you know, uh, sort of, you know, how do you, how do you know you can trust the Bible? And uh, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I heard this one time. And you're like, you know what? Um, man, I heard something. I, I heard something that is a great answer to that. Now, let me go back. I'll get back to you. Getting comfortable saying, you know, I'm not sure right now, or I heard something, or I remember something, or I'll help you find the answer to that question. Ultimately, it's the humility of saying in this circumstance, it's I don't know. Sometimes it's why did God let this happen to me? And ultimately, so often, the only answer we have is I don't know. I don't know. But it's I don't know, but let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. It's I don't know, but I, I know there are answers. Let me get back to you on that. And see, what this kind of response can do um, is just leave the door open for further conversation with people. I don't know the answer. You don't have all the answers oftentimes. Now, maybe you know a little bit, and by all means, share. This isn't some excuse not to learn things, not to learn how to share your faith effectively. It just acknowledges the fact that there's times when you don't have the answer, and instead of trying to pretend you do, it's much more effective to say, I, I don't know, but let me tell you what I do know. And this guy's, um, I was blind and now I see. That's what I know. How did it happen? Well, here's how it happened. Where Jesus go, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. How many people do you think this guy's testimony has influenced toward Jesus? I think just right in the immediate, all these people around him. And then how many millions upon millions upon millions over the years have they, have they read his account? I don't know, he says. But here's what I do know. And so now they bring him because in, in the area, the local religious leaders were the authorities and, and uh, they, they bring him like there's all this uproar. And so they bring the, this guy to the authorities. It says in verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. 
Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and had opened the eye, the man's eyes was the Sabbath. So if there was a soundtrack, all of a sudden the soundtrack just went wah, 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 because there's going to be drama now. It's the Pharisees. They're not everybody's favorite people in the story. They're always the downer. Uh, it's like that. Um, it's like when you walk in, and I know it's your civic duty, and you need to do it, kind of like taxes, right? Um, but you get the jury summons. I got one of those a while back, and you're just like, oh, no. No, you guys are much more spiritual, like an opportunity to serve my community. And thank goodness, it's on my day off, too. So now I can take a day away from the mountains to serve my community. Anyway, might be a little better. Just ignore that. So uh, they bring this guy to the Pharisees. And it says this, therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I watched, and now I see. At this point, he was getting a little tired of answering the question. But I love it. He just keeps it simple. He doesn't go into some big explanation. Ah, he put mud on my eyes. I washed now. I see. Keeps it simple. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so they were divided. See, here's what's going on here. Like Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And if you've been around here for a long time, we talk about this frequently because um, where God has just a handful of laws back in Exodus where he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, that you're going to take a day off from work to, to reconnect with family, to worship your God. It'll be a giant sigh of relief for the whole nation on this one day, and it'll remind you that you can trust God. But they had literally created about 1,500 stipulations to the point where they're like, I think when he spit and he rubbed the spit around, he's actually kneading, because you couldn't knead on the Sabbath. So apparently he was kneading mud. Um, mud pies, hey, your kids have kneaded some mud too in their time, right? So he was kneading, so he's officially breaking the Sabbath. And, uh, and then on, um, and then he to- they had a stipulation on exactly how many steps you could walk. So he just told the dude to get up and walk that far, which is obviously farther than the stipulation for the Sabbath rule breaker. But, but he- over and over again, you see this if you've read through the Gospels. Jesus actually is honoring the heart and the intention of what God created the Sabbath for, Right? to love God and love others. And yet, he is specifically pushing buttons that he knows will take these guys off. He can heal on Tuesday just as easy as on Saturday, um, but he picks Saturday a whole lot of times for a very specific reason. He's pushing their buttons. He's picking a fight because of their petty rules that they've created, which actually are serving the purpose of keeping people away from God not drawing them to God. And I think when you look at religious systems, um, they always tend, like people usually tend towards one extreme or the other when it comes to faith or religion. People usually tend towards being really good at making a whole lot of extra rules, or they are pretty good at completely ignoring God's, the laws that God gives and saying, ah, none of it really matters. Do whatever you want, as long as we all like love each other and 
you know, gather up and don't judge me, bro. And let's just sing Kumbaya over here on the side. I don't even know. Has anybody ever sung Kumbaya? A few of you in the back. I've heard it's a thing. If you're under 30, you've never even heard of Kumbaya. It was a song back in the day. Uh, The other side of it is we create all these rules that actually make it difficult for people to come to God because they look at these rule systems that go far beyond what God's guidelines for life are and actually go, if that's the standard, no way I can live up to that And, and create things that make it difficult to come to God. Law and grace is the difference. Grace is the thing that comes in and invites us into relationship, but grace doesn't mean there's no standard. Grace doesn't mean to do whatever you want. Apostle Paul says, no, may it never be. It's, it's that middle ground of saying, we're going to honor God, we're going to live the way God says, but let's not create a whole bunch of extra rules like these guys have and make it hard for people to come to God. I love it. The apostles in, in Acts 15 is are debating like, okay, all these Gentiles that don't have all these Jewish rules and didn't grow up doing all these different things as they come into the church, they're like, what do they have to do? Do they have to convert and become, do they have to convert and become Jewish? Do they have to keep all the, all the rules? And they said, hey, we're going to make it we're going to make it as easy as, as we can. Now, there's some minimum standards, but they just said, we are not, we've decided, let's not make it any harder for people to come to God than we have to. Let's not create a whole bunch of other obstacles. Let's understand that the gospel, this thing, God's doing something in this world that goes further. Don't make it hard for people to come to Jesus. So, Verse 17, it says, Then they turned again to the blind man. What do you have to say about him? All right, let's hear what you had to say, dude. You're you're the guy that supposedly he healed. What do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he's a prophet. See, the guy realized at this point, it's really fun as we get to the end of this chapter, and I'm not sure if we're going to get to the end of it today. Um, but as we, as we head down to see the, the, the way that the revelation that Jesus re- reveals who he is to this guy and his ongoing revelation of who God is, who Jesus is. And he's like, I, I, he must be a prophet. I mean, nobody's ever done this kind of thing before. This is like Elijah, old, Elisha, Old Testament, like super prophet kind of stuff. And even more, because nobody's ever seen this before. Nobody's ever done this. He's got to be more than just a good man. Look at Look at what he did for me. Verse 18 says, they, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? So now they're like, they just, they can't wrap their minds around it. He's like, yes, this is me. And they call the guy's parents in. Is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can see? And his parents are a little freaked out. And they say, we know he's our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age, he'll speak for himself. Like, they're like, don't, don't 
pin this on us. We don't have anything to do with this. Now, this response may be true, but it's not exactly the response you'd expect from a courageous, loving parent, is it? They're basically pushing him back into the firing. <laughs> like, like, here, you go back in here. We don't want to stand up for you. Fear. It's fear. In fact, verse 22 tells us this. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would, put, would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents says he is of age. Ask him. Fear. It's fear they're dealing with. They're afraid to be put out of the synagogue now. What you see in this, this account actually is, there's fear driving all sorts of stuff here. It's the Pharisees' fear of losing their status, losing their power and their position that's made them jealous of Jesus, so jealous they'll go on to end up, they'll end up crucifying him. And it was jealousy and fear that would lead to that a fear of losing status, a fear of losing their power, a fear that if they don't put down what the Romans will see as a, you know, as a threat, that the Romans will come in and take them out of power and install someone else in here. It says it was envy and jealousy that turned one of the root causes of why they turned him over to Pilate to be crucified. They're afraid of all kinds of things. And Jesus is doing something new. Through Jesus, the kingdom of God is breaking in. And they're seeing things that, that the prophet Isaiah had talked about. I mean, it, it was the prophet Isaiah. In fact, if you remember in Luke, when, when uh, we, we preached through Luke a number of years ago, if you're here with us, I know most of you weren't. But we preached through Luke, and the way Jesus begins his ministry in his hometown is he takes out the scroll and he reads from it and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to preach the good news. And one of the things that he goes on to say is recovery of sight for the blind. See, this was something prophesied in the Old Testament, but not seen. This is something that would be a signal that the kingdom age is, is coming. The kingdom age has arrived, that the kingdom of God is in your midst. Remember, when John the Baptist is, he's rotting in prison going, what's happening here? Jesus sends him word. And, and he says, hey, go, just go tell John that Isaiah stuff's happening. Recovery of sight for the blind. The gospel's being preached. It's happening. And it's this big signal that the kingdom of God is active and present in your midst. That, and if the kingdom is active, what does that mean? The king is here. And they're afraid of this new thing that's breaking out. The religious leaders fear Jesus. They fear the influence they'll have. They fear what this will do to their power and their status and the status quo. And they want to hang on to everything they have. And consequently, they choose to be blind. So you have a guy that was born blind, didn't choose it. It wasn't his fault. These guys actually, remember John, this theme of darkness and light all the way throughout 
John 3, right after your famous verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He goes on to say, but there's people who actually won't come into the light. They're going to stay out of the light because they do not want to enter the light because their deeds are evil. That they're willfully being blinded. That they refuse to see. That they refuse to step into the light so they can actually see the work of God in their midst. So they, they feared what Jesus represented. They feared what Jesus was doing. But the parents, they fear being put out of the synagogue. And this was actually a pretty big deal. This wasn't just like, hey, you can't come into church here, go to another church down the road. We've kind of lost, you know, the church discipline thing uh, over recent years in churches. Used to be a big thing. Like, you got to go down there. No, this, this was really a, if you were put out of the synagogue, it meant you were treated awfully in the community. You might as well move to a new community. Because your whole basis, your whole, like all the people you hung out with would begin to shun you. So it was, they were worried that they would basically lose their position, lose their standing in the community, lose everything that was their security. And because of that, it says it was fear of that, fear of the Pharisees, because they, they knew the Pharisees had already decided this, and they weren't going to touch it with a 10-foot pole. They're like, no, just talk to him. Just talk to him. There's a, uh, a famous preacher, you might have heard of him, John Piper. And as he was getting ready early in his ministry to... to uh, go to Germany. He, was, he would minister in Germany for three years and kind of leave all the safety and the comfort of everything, everything uh, he knew and go do some ministry in Germany. His father, before he left, gave him just a few verses to hang on to during this time. And one of them was this verse in Isaiah. And he actually, he did a whole message on this back in the 90s. And this verse it's not on the screen, but listen to this. This is God speaking. And he says this, Do, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. Isaiah 41. Now Jesus, when Jesus comes along, he will repeat this kind of thing often. And I think it's circumstances like this. It's, it's, he knew his disciples were going to be going into some very difficult circumstances. He, he commands. So you, do you realize out of the about 127 different things that Jesus speaks of and commands, the number one thing he has that he, that he teaches on has to do with fear and anxiety and not fearing? And like we started out saying, how do you go get, how do you get there? Because there's so many intense circumstances in life. There's so many things that we face and so many uncertainties. And you figure out really quick that um, you don't control your own life, ultimately. Like you can hopefully make some good wise choices and, you know, reap and sow and that's, that's good. We're taught to live with wisdom and, and be wise. And, but ultimately, Life really quick teaches you that ultimately uh, you're not in control, are you? 
just like this guy born blind. Did he do anything to cause it? No. Did his parents? No. Just happened. He grew up knowing this, realizing this. His parents knew this. They realized this. Life's unpredictable. How do you get to the place where Jesus, where you can actually live this way that Jesus says, which is like, don't worry about your life. Like, really, Jesus? Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Or how about this one? Don't fear the one who can only kill the body. Like, hey, what are you afraid of? Um, I don't know, Jesus, kind of that thing, right? That they'll kill me. Jesus says, no, 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 you got your priorities mixed up. See, and I think as as John Piper um, was given this scripture by his father, it impacted him. It became one of the scriptures that would carry him through this season of his life. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. From this, he found five different, what he called five different pillars See, if you can wrap your mind around the fact of who God is and the fact that he really is with you. I've been studying some some things about prophetic fulfillments in in Scripture. And uh, it's just amazing as you see the way that God moved in history and the way that God fulfilled and has been fulfilling things. And what it makes you realize is He is ultimately in control. He is sovereign. It doesn't mean that things happen in life that I'm not uncomfortable with and wish were different. But if you can actually wrap your mind around the fact that he is God and you're not, that he is in control, it can give you a fearlessness to live your life. He said these, these pillars, when it comes to understanding and living a life that's not dominated and controlled by fear, the first one is God is with me, that he is with me, that he is my God, that he will strengthen me, that he will help me, and he will uphold me. See, if you understand that, that, that God is really your God and that he is really with you, and if you really understand who God is, See, this this scripture is echoed to us in the New Testament. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's, I think, out of all the promises God gives, it's the greatest promise that he's never going to leave you, that he's always going to be with you. Here's how God describes himself just a little bit before this. He says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. He says, look at the stars. Have you ever gone out on a starry night? Have you ever been on the Mesa? If you've not, if you're new in the valley, you got to go to the Mesa sometimes. Summertime's a lot warmer. Uh, I'd recommend it. 
And just like I, we used to do this growing up, we'd, we'd, be, we'd go to camp on the Mesa and we'd lay out in our sleeping bags outside and just look up at the stars. And you're just in awe. Did you know, in ancient times, when it says to know the name of something, it meant to know the, the essence and it indicated a possession of power over something. And, and so God says he, he names all the stars. This is the God you worship. Do you know how many stars there are? I mean, I know when you go out and you lay outside, it's like, wow, that's amazing. Unless you're in L.A., then you're like, oh, that's an airplane. Um, <laughs> last time I was in L.A., we got this little Airbnb, like right close to the flight path. And it's amazing how many airplanes fly into LAX. Um, not a lot of stars are visible, but lots of airplanes. Um, not nearly as impressive. But anyway, there are... 70 sextillion stars. Now, that's a big number. Here's how big that number is. Seven with 27 zeros after it. Can any of you wrap your minds around that? No, you can't. Here's how, here's how big this number is. This number is 10 times all of the grains of the sand on all of the beaches and all the deserts. You know the Sahara? Um, anybody been to the sand dunes in Colorado? It's a lot of sand just right there. Ten times all of the grains of sand in, on all the beaches and all the deserts on planet Earth. That's an estimate of how big and how many stars there are. And God says, who will you compare me to? I know these. I, I, I created these. I, in fact, I know them all by name. That God is with you. So when Jesus gives us a command more than anything else that he says 21 times, don't be afraid or fear not or have courage or take heart. When you really understand that he's with you, see, I don't think we do, which I think is why we have so much anxiety, why why we have so much fear so often among or about completely trivial things. Often, sometimes about pretty serious things. But whatever the thing is, it pales in comparison if you really understand that God that's beyond anything we can comprehend is actually with you. He's with you. Which is why Jesus said, hey, don't fear man who can only kill the body. He says, fear, fear God. Fear the one who has the power over the body and the eternal being, the soul. Like if you want to know where your reverence and your awe and your respect should be, it's there. And then he goes on to tell us that that is our, our loving heavenly father who loves us and want a, wants a relationship with us. That's a free gift for us to receive. Proverbs says the fear, the awe, the reverence of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's caring most about what God thinks. How are you doing with that in your life? 
How are you doing in your life with caring most what God thinks? When you look at the, the place your heart goes on a daily basis, when, it, when you look at the anxiety that maybe you're feeling, when, it, when you look at the stress you're feeling, how might that change if it actually sunk into your heart that he's, he's with you? That he's, he's, he supports you? That he will strengthen you for the thing you're facing? That he will help you in your time of need? that he will uphold you. See, understanding the reality of who God is helps you a lot more when the answer is, I don't know. I don't know why this happened. I don't know why God allowed that to happen in your life. I don't know why your family turned out that way. I don't know. I don't know why God did not answer this prayer the way I was praying. And yet, here's the grace I saw. Here's how I saw his hand at work. Here's what I know. He is with me, and here's how I saw that in the circumstance. Here's how he moved powerfully and stepped in and did something that only God could do. And it changed my life forever. If you could really wrap your heart and your mind around that, I think it might change everything for you. How are you doing with caring most what God thinks? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What, how might it change your life? If your prayer as you get up in the morning is, Lord, as I go through these, all, I lay all these circumstances that I'm worried about before you. And today, as I go through, help me to live my life, to care most about what you think, not what others think. Would you stand? I'm going to close by praying for us tonight. Father, thank you for preserving this amazing story, this account of this conversation Lord, and as we see the way that this man's life was changed and and what we'll see next week as he replies how fearless and bold he is and how he encounters you. Lord, I just want to ask and I want to pray that you would help us live with this reference of framework this week. Do we care most what you think? Or are we wrapped up in in worrying so much about how everything we say and do might influence our standing and our status of people around, would you give us the wisdom and the grace to know how to communicate your love, your grace, the gospel, life with other people, and to live our lives in proper relationship and reverence in all of you? Lord, we love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.